Well, it is good to see you all tonight. It is good to be here. And um, as you can probably hear, I'm a little bit under the weather, so to speak. But it's interesting, as uh, I got here to cover some things I normally do on Tuesday, I basically spent the day yesterday in bed. And uh, I came early tonight to uh, cover a couple of things that I normally handle on Tuesday. And during the time since I've been here, I'm able to breathe through my nose for the first time in three days. So my conclusion is that going to church is good for you. So we need to go to church. Amen. Well, let's get on with it tonight. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16, and we are getting into the book of 1 Samuel more deeply in these coming weeks and some of the familiar stories and adages and monuments of scripture that we all can cite uh, by memory are in front of us in the coming weeks. And we're about tonight to be introduced to a man who's described as one after God's own heart. And we noticed in previous messages, and we noted both here in Acts as well as our time at First Samuel, that the Bible often uses contrast to highlight a truth or a principle or even to establish a point. And we're going to see a contrast between two men in our text tonight. David, the shepherd boy, versus Saul, the people's choices, king. And last week we noted that Samuel had to watch the devolution, so to speak, of a man he cared for greatly, a man he loved. He watched Saul simply unravel before his eyes, and it grieved him greatly that Saul had even come to the point where the Lord had rejected him as being king. And tonight we'll read that the spirit departed from Saul and then rested upon David. Now, we also encountered one of the monuments of Scripture last week as Saul kept blame-shifting. He kept making excuses. He kept justifying his lack of obedience to the Lord to the point where Samuel finally said, Be quiet. And then Samuel said to him, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of ram. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now, we drew the conclusion last week that from what Samuel says, and obeying being better than sacrifice, and our title, if you remember, was uh, to obey is better, period. Amen? We made the point that there's no such thing as partial belief or partial obedience. You either believe God or you don't believe God. You're either obedient or you're not obedient. There's no middle ground or room for subjectivism when it comes to the word and plan of God and the belief that he is who he says he is. Now, Saul then, after blaming his actions on the people, sought to justify his disobedience by saying, well, I actually kept the best to the flocks and herds of the Amalekites, even though you told me to destroy them because I wanted to offer them as an offering to you. And then he made the ultimate blame shift he was basically blaming it on the Lord. I did this for you, Lord. I kept and disobeyed, or kept these uh, animals and disobeyed your word for 
the sake of sacrificing to you. Now, we made the note that rituals and religion cannot make anyone right or pleasing to God. And he was simply saying, you know, I'm doing this, Lord, even though I'm living in disobedience, even though I'm living, as Samuel said, in a way that is equivalent to witchcraft and idolatry, even though I'm doing this, Lord, I was trying to do something to honor you in my disobedience. Now, whether or not his intention was to really offer the best of the Amalekite sheep and oxen to the Lord, we don't know. But he feigned religious observance and ritual nonetheless. Now, we're going to find some rather interesting providential maneuvering on the part of the king of kings as he now takes a boy who will be king and sets him in front of the current king, unbeknownst to the king. Now, we're going to find a rather curious statement that's also going to open the door for a little theological housekeeping and clarification when we're going to read that the Lord sent a distressing spirit to Saul. Now, That brings us to our title and the focus of our time and text tonight. And our title is simply answering the question, how to be, and here's our title, a person after God's own heart. A person after God's own heart. It's not limited to men. The subject, when the statement was made, was directed towards King David, and therefore uh, the male uh, pronoun, so to speak, is used regarding that statement. But you can be a woman after God's own heart. You can be a man after God's own heart, and so we should be. Now, we're going to encounter another monument of Scripture in our text tonight, reminding us that God looks where man can't see. God looks upon the what? The heart. He looks on the heart where many of man's decisions are based on appearances or outward things. Saul looked like a king. He acted like a king like other nations, which is what the people asked for. But God saw his heart too, and if you remember, he told the people he's going to take, 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 take. Six times he said he's going to take from you. Now, I want you to think about this in contrast to uh, another man who was formerly known as Saul, the Apostle Paul, when he was talking to the people in uh, Antioch of Pisidia in a lesson in Jewish history in Acts 13, where he quoted actually from 1 Samuel. He said this in Acts 13, 20 to 23. After that, he, the Lord, gave them judges for about 450 years. Eight sets of judges ruled during that time period until Samuel the prophet. And afterwards, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Now, here's another clarifier, if you will, about being after the Lord's own heart. Who will do, what's the next word? All my will. There's no partial obedience. There's no partial belief, as we said last week. Now, Saul claimed to do the Lord's will, but Saul also defined what the Lord's will was, and we should never do that. We should always let the Lord speak through his word to us and direct our steps. Now, David was a man who would do all the Lord's will even though David was a man who would later fail. David was a man with personal struggles. 
David was a man who would later say, Oh, my soul, why are you disquieted within me? He was discouraged and often battled with downcastness of soul. But he was a man who repented when he fell. And he was a man who cried out to God when he was distraught and discouraged. And through all those experiences, he believed God, trusted God, relied on God, making him a man after God's own heart. So let's learn from the contrast between the heart of these two kings on how to be a person after God's own heart. We'll start with verses 1 through 7. So if you would stand and read with me, please. Let's begin our time in 1 Samuel 16, 1 to 7. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature. Because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You may be seated. I think it worthy that we remember this is a continuation of a very beautiful love story from the Old Testament regarding Boaz and Ruth, uh, two Bethlehemites themselves. And in Micah 5.2, We're also reminded that these uh, grandparents of Jesse, uh, David's father, also lived in a city where the prophet would write, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. (coughs) Can anybody think of a king born in Bethlehem? His name starts with J and ends with Jesus. Amen. Now, the first king of God's choosing was from a city in which the king of kings would later be born and eventually sit on David's throne. Now, I wanted to mention this because it reminds us of a couple of things. One, God is sovereign. He is sovereign over the affairs of men, and he is directing the course of events that are written in his word. And the second thing we need to remember is God is always wanting to make his will known. And he, since there were only two people on the earth, has always been pointing to Jesus. And the central character of the scripture is Jesus Christ. And it points to him constantly, even beginning in Genesis 3.16, where the gospel is first presented. Now, in 1 Samuel 15, 35, Samuel went no more to see Saul, we were told last week, until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, it's clear that some time has passed, so we don't know exactly how long. But the Lord says to Samuel, all right, enough of the mourning. 
Take your flask or the horn used to anoint those for positions of office. Fill it with oil and get ready to anoint the man that I have chosen as king. Now it's noteworthy that Samuel and the people were both living in fear. The Lord says, go to Bethlehem and anoint someone as king and I'll show you who. And he gave him an idea about the family uh, to look for. Now, Samuel was afraid. He said, hey, Saul's going to kill me if he finds out what I'm doing. And then Samuel arrives in Bethlehem. And what are the people doing when he arrives? Have you come peaceably? The people are in fear. Because the fact is, if you remember what happened in our last chapter, if you've got a king who will kill his own son for scooping up a handful of honey after battle, who knows what he's going to do to someone else who disobeys him who's not his own family? What would he be capable of with any of them? And Samuel says, Lord, if Saul hears about this, he'll kill me. The people freak out. They say, Samuel, if you come peaceably, Samuel gives a one-word answer, peaceably. Now, Proverbs 29.2 reminds us, when the righteous are in authority, oh, Lord, let the righteous come into authority in our country someday, amen? When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people do what? They groan, and this was the national experience under King Saul, groaning, which can mean sighing or mourning. And the Lord said, someday you're going to wish that I hadn't made him king and given you what you asked for. Now, what God had in his choice for the people was rejoicing. And in future chapters, we're going to read of a broody, moody, tyrannical behavior of King Saul contrasted against David's joy and dancing before the Lord. Saul sat in fear of Goliath, as we'll see in chapter 17. David had no fear of Goliath. And by himself, he charged the Philistine champion and took off his head. And here the Lord tells Samuel, take a heifer and say you've come to sacrifice. And when you arrive, invite Jesse, and then I'll tell you what you need to do. Now, we also need to note that the Lord didn't say to Samuel, you just let me worry about Saul. Samuel said, Lord, if Saul finds out, he's going to kill me. So the Lord told him what to do. He told Samuel to run his mission as a covert op, if you will, because Samuel was right. Saul would kill him if he found out what he was up to. Now, that's a reminder for all of us that God doesn't necessarily remove the opposition when moving people into his will, but he does give us the wisdom on how to proceed. And curiously, there are those who say that the Lord actually told Samuel to fudge on the truth or tell, as we would say, a little white lie. Well, there's no such thing as a white lie. All lies are black and ugly and of Satan, for he is the father of all lies. Amen? Now, the Lord didn't tell Samuel to lie to save his hide. He said, take a heifer to sacrifice and then sacrifice a heifer when you get there. He just gave him a strategy. Now, think about Luke 16, where Jesus commended the shrewdness of a steward who was about to be fired. When the steward who had care over his master's household goods lowered the debt of those who owed his master money or goods so they would show him favor if he needed it. And Jesus commended him for his shrewdness. And shrewdness is not deceitfulness. And that's what the Lord tells Samuel to do here. Be a bit tactical in your approach when you go to Bethlehem knowing who Saul is. 
Now, Samuel arrives. He issues the invitation to the sacrifice. He consecrates, meaning ceremonially washes Jesse and his sons. And he gets a look at Eliab and he says, there he is. This guy's got to be the king. Look at him. He's huge. He's got to be the guy. Remembering that Samuel saw when Saul was pointed out as king, he was a head taller than everybody else. Now, the interesting thing to me is that Samuel has this as his mindset, knowing full well that looking at Saul didn't mean he was the right man for the job. His stature didn't mean anything. But here Eliab comes walking by and walking into the room, rather, and Samuel immediately looks at his outward appearance and says, this guy's got to be the king. He just looks like one. Well, they already had somebody that looked like a king, and they didn't need another one. So the Lord said to Samuel, you're using man's unit of measure, physical stature and outward appearance. And the Lord says, I don't look at people that way. I look upon the heart. Now, this brings us to a point that it will sound obvious, but I want to bring it in a little closer. And it's a bit tongue in cheek as well. Listen, God is looking to use people with the right heart, not the right appearance. God is looking to use people with the right heart, not the right appearance. Now, obviously, this is what we just read. But remember, Saul was tall, handsome, but his spirit was dark. He was the people's choice as king. And it's a bit odd, again, that Samuel sees Eliab, whose name means God is father, and says, this has got to be the next king. He just looks kingly. But here's the real point. Appearances are not limited to physical things when it comes to our usability. Now listen, here's what I wanted to drive home for us all. God is not looking for those who appear to be doing and saying all the right things or looking for a perfect candidate outwardly for whatever God needs to be done. But Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose what? Heart is loyal to him. Now listen, <coughs> excuse me, God is not looking for the big and the strong per se, the physically appealing, nor is he looking for, as is proven by Moses, the eloquent or the great orator. God is looking for someone whose heart is loyal to him in the unseen realms, in the things outside of outward appearances. God is looking for someone who is dedicated to him at all times. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm so sorry. <coughs> You guys should mute the mic while I'm coughing up there. That'd be okay. Okay, let's try it again. Now, think about what was said about Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.10. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. He's not a great order. <coughs> and remember, Paul's name means small. So he wasn't one of physical stature that would make him intimidating. But they said he sure writes like a big man. No. Excuse me again. <coughs> oh, goodness. <coughs> Bear with me tonight. I'm so sorry. 
What made Paul usable to the degree that he was, was what's found in his conversion story. Remember, he was apprehended by the Lord on the road to Damascus. He asked, who's this voice that is now speaking to me? Who are you, Lord? And the voice responded, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And Paul's immediate response in Acts 9, <coughs> 9, 6 was, trembling and astonished, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. And that's exactly what Saul did, who would soon become Paul. Now, this is someone God wants to use. And thankfully, Saul, who became Paul, reveals that King Saul, even after all of his failures and disobedience, he could have become usable again. But he never came to the place that Saul the Pharisee came to on the road to Damascus. I will do what you want me to do, Lord. Now listen, if we want to be used by the Lord, we want to be used by the Lord? Well, we would do better to prepare ourselves by getting our hearts in order than trying to appear usable. And this is our point. God is looking upon the heart, a heart that is loyal to him, not someone who has all the outward activities, even though those things are good. And we should have good works in our lives. We're told to... uh, that there are good works prepared beforehand for us to walk in, and we should walk in them. Amen? Now, let's pick it up in 8 to 13. You know what? I'm going to have to get a cough drop out. You're going to hear it rattling in my teeth while I'm talking, so you're going to have to bear with me here. (laughs) Now, let's pick it up in verse 8. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping his sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now, the parade of sons moved past Samuel, as the Lord continues to say to each of them, no. And finally, after son number seven passes by, Jesse is asked by Samuel, is this it? Are these all your sons? To which he replies, well, the youngest is out there keeping the sheep. And it seems as though the father of David had no idea that David was even a candidate for whatever Samuel was looking for. And he himself wouldn't have chosen him (coughs) above his other seven brothers, it seems obvious as well. After all, David was only a boy. Josephus believes that David was 10 years old at this time, and so he would be a young boy. Most commentators believe he was somewhere between 14 and 16. We also note that at this time he was a shepherd. This was a task normally assigned to the lowest of the household servants and not to a son. But here's David out watching the sheep. 
And Jesse certainly wouldn't have chosen him above his brothers for any task that Samuel had, uh, his involvement and presence had been warranted. In fact, Jesse ignores him entirely, not even inviting him to the sacrifice. Now, when David arrives, we're told he's ruddy, and that can be translated as red-haired. So he's a red-haired, bright-eyed, good-looking boy. And the Lord said to Samuel, this is Israel's future king. This is the man after my own heart. This is the one who will do all my will. And Samuel anoints, <coughs> goodness sakes, David with oil. The spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And with the king, now identified and anointed, Samuel simply goes home. Now, again, the contrast, thinking back to 10.1 of 1 Samuel, Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him, him being Saul, and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you, commander, over his inheritance? Now, as we look back, we see no mention of the Spirit of the Lord being upon Saul or coming upon Saul continually or all of his days, as is mentioned about King David. Now, what we need to consider about being a person after the Lord's own heart comes from the fact that David was doing something menial. Shepherds were the lowest rung on the social ladder, even a thousand years later at the time of Jesus. Now, we need to remember that Jesse is Ruth and Boaz's grandson. And Boaz was a wealthy landowner. And listen, David was part of a wealthy family, but he was doing something that was despised and rejected by men. He was tending sheep. Now, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus made the same comparison <coughs> concerning himself, where he said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. You know, sheep do have fleas, so you'd have to leave them both, right? Now, the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known by my own. And as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. I lay down my life for who? For the sheep. Now, it's going to be a few weeks before we get there, so we can look ahead a little bit and glance into chapter 17 a bit and examine an exchange between King Saul and David concerning the Philistine champion Goliath. Now, in 1 Samuel 17, 34 to 37, David said to Saul, when Saul said, this guy's a warrior from his youth. You're just a kid. What are you going to do against this guy? David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Now, David risked his life for the sheep. And the Lord was with him. And the same power that allowed him to kill both lion and bear would empower him to deal with Goliath. And we'll see that in coming weeks. Now, this opens the door for our second consideration tonight. 
David is doing something that others, even in his own family, and certainly in society, would consider menial or even beneath them. Yet, divine power is manifested in David's life to the degree that it allowed him to protect the sheep under his care from both lion and bear. Now, here's our takeaway tonight concerning being a person after God's own heart. Listen, when God wants to do a great thing, he looks among those faithful and the small ones. When God wants to do a great thing, he looks among those faithful and the small ones. Now, basically, this is a paraphrase of something Jesus said in Luke's gospel in 16, 10 to 12, where Jesus said, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Now, mammon obviously is talking about finances or riches, but that is a application of a general broader principle when Jesus is talking about being faithful in the small things. David was faithful in keeping his father's sheep. And when the time came to select a king, God looked not on those who appeared kingly, but he looked upon one with a servant's heart. And that was David. Now, I was, uh, this past Friday night, I know Charlie announced it uh, uh, Sunday, or a week ago Sunday, I had a great time with our RIN study, our young adults and They had a bunch of great questions. I had a chance to talk to them about ministry and tell a little bit of how God had moved through our life. And I told them and reminded myself that my first official task in ministry was setting up chairs for a high school Bible study. That's the first thing the Lord had me to do. And I did that every week, and I did it and enjoyed it as doing it as unto the Lord until it became too great a a task for one person. At that same time, Terry, every Wednesday, spent the day baking so we could give some treats to these young high school people who were coming to the ministry at the church until the same thing happened. It became too much for her, and they finally opened a snack bar. But the fact is, listen, it doesn't matter what we're doing. What matters is who we're doing it for. The task is irrelevant. Whether God assigns us a great task or a small task, if he says tend the sheep, when society looks down on sheep keepers, go tend the sheep and do it as unto me. If he says, hey, go tend the sheep in the children's ministry, then go tend the sheep in the children's ministry. It doesn't matter what the task is. As long as it's done as unto the Lord, because this is what Colossians tells us in 3.23 to 24. Whatever you do, do it how? Heartily is to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve who? The Lord Christ. That's what David was doing. He took a task that was normally assigned to the lowest of servants in his household. It was a task that was so lowly, his father and brother sought so little of him, they didn't even invite him as a potential candidate to the sacrifice with the prophet Samuel. But the fact is, David still did what he did with his whole heart. And the Lord empowered him to kill both lion and bear as he risked his life for the sheep. Now, when it comes to being a person after God's own heart, it's not about how we serve. It's who we serve, again, that matters. 
from the shepherd of the sheep to a fisher of men, whatever we do, we ought to do it heartily as unto the Lord. And when the time comes that the Lord is looking to do a great work, we will find ourselves among those from whom he chooses for such things. So let's finish off with 14 to 23 and pray there's no more coughing. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. (coughs) And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall be that he will play it with his hand, and he will, uh, that it shall, I'm sorry, it shall be that he will play it with his hand from the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is a skill, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. And David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was. Whenever the spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Now, this is one of those places where as you're studying commentaries, it seems as though commentators try and defend God. And they try and uh, turn the words into saying something that is more suitable for their understanding and at times it seems to lessen what is written now God sending a distressing spirit to Saul and troubling is that matter at hand and the majority opinion among commentators is that the Lord removed his hand of protection took his spirit from Saul and this allowed Satan to torment Saul or a demonic spirit with a a distressing spirit now what does our text say It says, the Lord sent a distressing spirit. So what I believe the meaning of the passage is, is that the Lord sent a distressing spirit to trouble Saul. Now, the text that is used to say that this was the Lord allowing Satan to have his way is from James, where James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, do you see anything about the distressing spirit being a temptation for Saul? What was it doing to Saul? It was troubling him. It wasn't tempting him. And the Lord was trying to trouble him to repentance, obviously. Now, the second thing I think we need to recognize is that not every distressing aspect of life is evil. Hebrews 12.11 says, No chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Somebody say amen. But painful, nevertheless, afterwards it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Is chastening evil? No. Is it joyful? No. Now, the effort to distance God from anything that is distressing, therefore, is unnecessary. Now, I want you to think about this. 
those who have a problem with the Lord sending a distressing spirit. Think about what he did in 2 Kings 19.35, that it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses. I don't know why it adds all dead, but a corpse kind of implies that, doesn't it? There were the corpses. They were all dead. Now, was this a positive experience for the Assyrians? It was distressing for them to be sure, yet not evil. The Lord doesn't do evil things. So the Lord sent an angel. Angels are ministering spirits to distress Saul and trouble him. Now, Saul's servants obviously had some discernment. They perceived that this was the Lord and said, let us find a man who is a skilled harpist, kind of the uh, guitar of antiquity, who can come and play before you. And when the distressing spirit is upon you, you shall be well. And the word well means simply to do better. Now, I think there's an old adage that is appropriate that music tames the savage beast. And there is power in music. There's power in music. And the fact is, I think all of us have had some stupid jingle from a commercial stuck in our head, which is exactly what the advertisers want to do. And the fact is, there is power indeed in music, particularly when it's associated with the will and plan of God. Now, Saul agrees. Seek out a man. One of the servants says, there is such a man among the sons of Jesse. He's a man of valor. He's a man of war. He's well-spoken. He's handsome. And the Lord is with him. So among the sons of Jesse, guess who? Obviously, it's King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, it seems possible that the Lord was giving Saul an opportunity to make the transition from Saul to David's kingdom easier by showing him what kind of man David was. He was a good-looking young man who was a man of war and filled with wisdom, who spoke well. Now, the other thing I think we need to note is the power of worship and praise. Now, I'm pretty sure that the sweet psalmist of Israel wasn't playing Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath for the king. Pretty sure. Now, if any of you email me and tell me they weren't around back then, we're going to put you on a prayer chain Get a sense of humor. No, I know they weren't around back then. David comes before Saul, and Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer, a trusted position within any kingdom or king's household. Now, this gives us the last of the three considerations concerning being a person after God's own heart. And that is this. Listen, there is no limit to the impact of a person who has a heart for God. There is no limit to the impact of a person who has a heart for God. Now, some believe that Saul was demon-possessed and the distressing spirit was actually demonic. Yet, David's heart for the Lord expressed through the harp soothed Saul, and he would become refreshed, and he did better, and the distressing spirit departed. Now, as a reminder for you and I concerning our point, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 13 to 16, after the Beatitudes, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Then he adds another illustration. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, 
but on a lampstand, and he gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father in heaven. Now listen, whatever the source or cause of the distressing spirit, God allowing it or sending it, the truth is the heart of David for the Lord put him in a place where a disobedient king was refreshed by his presence. Now this is to be our life description as well. We are salt. Salt in the illustration means to be a preserving and purifying influence. We are light, which is an idiom for truth and divine revelation from God's word. So in times such as ours, we cannot minimize the importance and the potential of our impact as people after God's own heart. Now, listen, the church will never have dominion over the world. We are never going to rule over the world economically and governmentally. That's not going to happen. Things are going to get worse and worse until the Lord comes back and judges the nations who attack Israel. But the truth is, our presence today around those who are distressed in this world can still bring a sense of refreshing to them. We can still have a positive impact, even in times such as these. Have you ever, any of you who have been around any length of time and voted in elections, has you ever seen more knuckleheads in one Congress than we have right now? It's just, it's stunning the things that people say. It's like, did you ever go to school? Did you ever learn any history? Do you know anything about politics or America and our history? It's crazy some of the things that people are saying today in power. I better stop right there or I'm going to get going here in a minute. Now, listen. Some people are going to hate us because of our heart for God. Jesus said so. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the fact is... If we are a person after God's own heart, we will be a people, obviously, of a right heart towards the Lord. We're going to be faithful in the small things. And the lowly task of keeping sheep to the privilege of playing soothing music from the king will all be the same for us because we do it as unto the Lord. Now, the psalmist says in Psalm 100, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord how? With gladness. Come before his presence with singing. That's what David was doing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. Read it together for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. You know, That's the life of a person after God's own heart. Their joy isn't impacted by the tasks they are assigned or the circumstance of life. They are simply one who rejoices in the Lord because it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. When we realize that the Lord is good. I had one of those moments driving to church and it continued during worship tonight where it was just an overwhelming thankfulness for God's mercy. God has been so merciful to me, and I think part of it is just thinking back, and some of you I know have mentioned watching the program uh, on his channel, Focus Point, that I did with John Randall 
and it was about abuse and to talk about the person that I used to be is an embarrassing and painful thing but it was just I think feeding into the fact that God's mercies are new every morning he is a good and he is a loving God and he is a God who restores he is a God who repairs and therefore being a person after his own heart shouldn't be some external series of disciplines. It should just be after all you've done for me, how can I view doing anything for you as menial or beneath me? Whether it's setting up chairs or having the high honor of standing up before wonderful saints like you and preaching the word, it is the Lord who deserves the glory. It is the Lord who has been merciful to us. He is good and his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. That's the life of a person after God's own heart. Hey, let's be that. Let's be that. Let's be that and see what he does. Let's just be like David gives us an example of how to be here in our text. Let's be totally in contrast to those who are externals oriented. Let's be a people where when the Lord comes looking for someone to show himself strong on behalf of, we're in the line of sight because our hearts are loyal to him. Hey, things are wrapping up quickly. And the Lord is coming for his church. There's no question about that. It's funny, I see a lot a lot of times on social media, uh, somebody just popped up in an antagonistic and attacking way saying, you know, I've been hearing that from my parents for the last 40 years. And I've resisted the temptation to type on there, hey, you're in the Bible. Scoffers would come in the last days saying, where is the promise of his coming? Hey, everything's happening that the Bible said is going to happen in the last days. Jesus is coming. Let's finish strong. Let's finish well. Let's finish as people after God's own heart and all God's people said. Amen. Thank you, Lord, that we got through this night and Lord thank you for this wonderful text we have in front of us thank you Lord for giving us some specifics to target in our own lives as being someone that when there's a task at hand that Lord we are ready with loyal hearts to you and forgive us Lord for all the times we have felt as though something was beneath us or not up to our capabilities or personal Uh, standards. Help us, Lord, to simply be like David, servants, people after your own heart. So we thank you, Lord, for the things that we have gleaned tonight. We pray that you would bless us as we come into this wonderful weekend celebrating what you have done at CCT for now coming up on 20 years. And we give you all the praise and the glory for all you have accomplished We thank you we'll have a chance to talk about it and review it this week. So bless us, Lord. The weather says rain. I pray you would clear the skies because you are able to do that. So I ask for beautiful skies on Sunday as we celebrate what you've done in birthing and continuing and maintaining CCT. We give you honor and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.